Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Today we wrap up our series on the Pentateuch. This has been a wonderful exploration of the first five books of the Bible. Alan, actually, uh, it makes me want to read these books again. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that you want to do that. So they're really fascinating books. And as I've said before, they form the very foundation and introduction to the entire Bible. It, it introduces us to the God of the Bible. And uh, they do it so effectively. Well, so on to the final book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy. You mentioned at the conclusion of our podcast on numbers that Deuteronomy literally means second law. Explain that to us, please. Yeah, it's the second giving of the law as such. Um, and, And in actuality, it's one long sermon by Moses on the law. You might remember uh, that uh, the people are ready to enter the land and uh, Moses will not accompany them. Um, God reveals to Moses that he will not cross uh, the Jordan. So uh, this is basically his last will and testament. He's preparing them as they enter the promised land, the, the land that God has promised them, uh, a land that they can call their own. So it's, in many ways, the book of Deuteronomy is a very poignant book because at the end of the book, Moses dies. Yeah. By the way, just as an aside, obviously, he didn't write that part of, the, of, of Deuteronomy. <laughs> Someone put that in at the very end. But it, it emphasizes the fact that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings the curse. And, you know, that's the theme that has permeated the entire Pentateuch. And I would go as far as to say beyond the, the Pentateuch, uh, through the entire scripture hmm. that you know either we're going to trust this god and if we're going to trust him we're going to obey him and that will bring blessing if we distrust the god and result in disobedience it will result in a curse the theology of the call on the one hand from uh, genesis 12 the theology of the serpent in genesis 3. so um uh, this basically, this, this wonderful book, this um, fifth uh, book of the uh, Pentateuch, um, begins and ends in the land of Moab in the 40th year of the exodus from Egypt. Well, if it's a final message to his people, does Moses develop it in any special way? You know, he does, which is kind of fascinating. You know, it isn't just law. It isn't a reiteration of the law as such. I mean, it's much more than that. And I would say that, you know, if I were to divide the book up, I would divide it into four major sections, or or, since it's a sermon, I would say it's a four-point sermon, if you will. Hmm. Um, They're not equally balanced. The first four chapters is the historical review. You know, you have it kind of summed up in in chapter 4, verse 9, where uh, Moses basically says, I don't want you to forget what God has done. So that would be, you know, the historical review that, that basically is the preparation for the second section, which is the main body of the book, and that's a legal review. He, he goes over the law again uh, from chapters 5 through 26, large part of the book. These are God's requirements for you. As you enter the land, this is what God requires. And then, like any good sermon, he builds up to the, the challenge, which I would call the third point that he makes in chapters 27 through chapter 30. And basically, uh, having... Uh, told them, rehearsed for them what God has done, outlined for them what God requires of them as they enter the land, he basically then leads them to a point of saying, now you need to make a choice. 
you're either going to choose life or you're going to choose death. So you need to make up your mind. So, so he places the challenge before them. And then in the final section, chapters 31 through 34, you have the final preparation. And Moses basically is saying, now, let me tell you who God is. This is what God is like. Uh, this is the God that you can trust as you enter the land of promise. So I would say that um, there are, if you will, it's a four-point sermon. The historical review, what God has done in the past. The legal review, what God requires as you enter the land. The choice that, that you face as you enter the land. Are you going to choose life? Are you going to choose death? Are you going to choose obedience? Uh, are you going to choose disobedience? Are you going to choose trust or distrust? And then finally, this great climax, if you will, where he says, now here is the God. This is the God on whom you need to depend as you enter the land. So that's a well-crafted sermon, if you will, and leads us in the total preparation towards entering the land. Now, interestingly, right through even permeating those points, he again and again will refer to the theology of call and the theology of the serpent. He will contrast again and again disobedience to obedience, one leading to the curse, that's disobedience, of course, and one leading to blessing. And, and that will permeate, uh, especially that will permeate the second, third, and fourth points that he makes. Uh, you'll find it in chapter 10, you'll find it again in chapter 30, and you'll find it again in chapter 32. And then, of course, the curtain comes down at the very end of the book with the death of Moses and his burial somewhere on Mount Nebo. And to this day, of course, we do not know where he is buried. So there was never any opportunity to venerate the body of Moses. Hmm. You know, as we look at these books, uh, in each case, we hear why we should read the book. Why should we read Deuteronomy? I mean, this is the law for the people coming out of Egypt thousands of years ago, going into the promised land. Why should we care about that today? It's a good question. Um, I think it's important to understand that it is through the law that the nature and character of God is revealed. So even though the, the specifics of, of particular laws may no longer apply to the church of Jesus Christ today, this emphasis on, on what God requires, we can extract from those things pertinent principles on which we can base our lives and need to base our lives. You know, it seems to me that uh, we're called far beyond the law. In, in many ways, I think it would be easier to keep a code of conduct than it is basically to, to live righteously. Mm. So this basically lays a foundation for trying to understand what is important to God, what he required of his people then, and, and what he may require of us today in greater measure, you know. When Jesus said, you've heard it in the past, this was said, but I say unto you. So Christ calls us to a greater law, if you like. Now, it's not a codified legal system that it was in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, but nonetheless, you know, we, we refer to it being the law of love. You know, I mean, the Old Testament says you shall not murder. Um, you know, I, I need to tell you, I've never committed murder. I mean, I've, you know, that's, that, that's, that, that has not been a difficult law for me to keep, you know. But if, uh, if, if I look uh, in, in my heart, um, if my heart poisons me towards someone, Jesus tells me that I've already committed murder. Now, in that case, I, I, I would need to confess that, you know, maybe I have done that, you know. So, so it's kind of, um, 
I think it's really good to understand the nature of law because from law there issues grace. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes people refer to uh, the era of law and the era of grace as, as two distinct eras. They're not. Grace has grown out of law. Grace is an extension of the law. So therefore it's good to understand the law. But, but even more than that, you know, the book of Deuteronomy is not just about law. Now again, you know, a large part of it has to do with legal requirements. There's no question, but, but the, the historical review that begins with the book, uh, the, the, the choice uh, that, that is laid before the people later in the book, the concept of who God is towards the end of the book, these are powerful concepts that I think it's good for us to get our, our minds around. Certainly not something that um, many preachers teach on today, I would imagine. You probably being an exception. Have you taught on Deuteronomy a lot? Uh, I've taught on Deuteronomy a lot. I, I don't know that I've preached many sermons on Deuteronomy, but it is deserving. I mean, there's just so much to preach on in the scriptures. Aren't mm-hmm. there? I mean, one lifetime isn't enough, but it is certainly deserving of some really uh, really good messages. And, and they're here. I mean, there's so much poignant stuff here that would melt your heart. And um, I, I hope we'll get to those in the course of, uh, of our discussion. Great. Well, let's, let's talk about these four points. Yeah, let, let me go back then and say that the first of those points, let's have a look at the first one, the mm-hmm. f- first four chapters. And essentially, it's what I call a, a historical review. What you have here is Moses is basically rehearsing how God has dealt with his people. The, the wonderful thing about the Judeo-Christian faith is that there is, if you will, a theology of history undergirding our faith. History is important. You know, there's so many religions of the world that, uh, that, that are basically made up of uh, so many uh, myths. Mm-hmm. So the mythology is part and parcel of the religion. I mean, the Hindu faith, for example, is perhaps one of the most uh, outstanding of those faiths. Um, I mean, the stories are mythological. You know, they have how many, 33 million gods or something um, in their faith. And, and if you don't like the 33, one of the 33 million, you can essentially, as I've talked to Hindus, you essentially can make up your own. So the distinction of Judeo-Christian faith is that we say there is a theology of history undergirding Christian faith, that history is important and that history has meaning and that history is the platform for revelation. Mm. Now, if that is the case, and we believe that it is, we affirm that it is, then it is important to remember the past, to remember how God has dealt with his people. So what you have here is a a retelling of the story, and that's always a good thing. Uh, We can learn from retelling our stories. How, in this instance, how God called his people out of the land of Egypt, how he took care of them, how he saw them through victory after victory. And Moses is not, um, he's not hesitant about talking about the disobedience, the the rebellions, uh, and the need to clear out an entire generation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, interestingly in chapter one, it is a story of tragedy. It's a story of disobedience. It's a story that summarizes the theology of the serpent. You know, they just didn't trust God. They were at the, the oasis of Kadesh Barnea. The story is picked up, I think, in verse uh, 19. And at uh, Kadesh Barnea, they were, um, they were encouraged to go and fight, to enter the land. And you remember they sent out the spies. Mm-hmm. We saw that in the book of Numbers. 
and the spies came back with a majority report saying, you know, oh, uh, we'll never conquer these people. They're too big. They're, they're too strong. Yeah. Despite the fact that God had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Hmm. And what you have here, you know, uh, Moses says to them, you would not go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your hearts. And you said, because the Lord hated us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Wow. I mean, really? So that this was the reason for the rebellion and then the subsequent defeat, of course, that comes later in the chapter because, you know, Moses said, God said he was going to go before you. God said he was going to give you victory and you would not believe, you did not believe in the Lord. And so as a result, that entire generation is going to, is going to be killed. And then, of course, you know, by the time you get to verse 41 of chapter 1, the, the people say, oh, okay, we made a mistake. We made a mistake. We'll go up now. Right. And, and Moses says, too late. You know, it's, you didn't trust. Um, I don't want you going. And, and so they disobeyed again. And they went up and only to be chased away. So Moses, you know, outlines all this in chapter, uh, in chapter 1. And then, you know, um, he will say that uh, in chapter 2, he tells them that they will wander around for, I think he actually says here, 38 years in chapter 2, until basically everyone in that, all the fighting men in that generation um, had passed away. And then, then he talks about, he moves into chapter 2 and into chapter 3, where he contrasts what was going on with chapter 1. The disobedience that led to tragedy in chapter 1 becomes the obedience that leads to victory in chapter 2. So what's important, I think, in these opening four chapters is this concept, again, that history is important. The, the drama of salvation, the history of salvation, is enacted in the, in the realm of history. These are real happenings. And either you're going to embrace the theology of the serpent or the theology of call. Either you're going, to, you're going to trust this God and to be obedient to this God, or you're going to distrust this God and be disobedient, one leading to a blessing, one leading to a curse. So it, basically chapters 1 to 4 is a way of looking at history, hmm. which is fundamental to Judeo-Christian faith. And it's really a look at our everyday lives. We're constantly being tempted, and it's a daily choice that we make to follow God or to not follow him. Yes, precisely, precisely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then uh, where does this leave us? Uh, we're moving now into Moses' second point, I assume. Yeah, the second point, of course, is the big section of the book, um, running uh, from uh, chapter 5 through 26. So that's 22 chapters or thereabouts. So essentially the second part of the book the second point it comprises two-thirds of the entire book which makes it important. and if moses yeah yeah of course um and it is it is the the requirements of god if moses is is describing the theology of history in the first four chapters then he's explaining the theology of law and obedience in the second point now initially he begins with uh, the Ten Commandments, chapter 5. He calls them to a life of holiness and love, chapter 6. He rehearses all that God has done for them in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And, and you know, I mean, even though this is law, 
Remember, this is a sermon in which um, in which Moses is dealing with uh, these these matters, and it it really is a, a it's a beautiful sermon. If I if I can just scoot over to chapter ten, you know you've got this, and and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, to serve the Lord your God, and with all your heart, with all your soul. To keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which he commanded you this day for your good. Behold to the Lord God belongs heaven and earth and the heaven and all that is in it. And yet the Lord set his heart and love upon your fathers and chose you, their descendants, after them. So that you're above all peoples at this day. And so then he calls them to love, to, to circumcise their lives. It, it's really, you know, it's even though we would say that the second major thrust of the book has to do with the legal requirements. And, and indeed, in fact, as the laws continue into chapter 12 and following, they become much more specific. In many ways, not dissimilar to Exodus chapters 21 through 24. Yet the, the language that Moses is using here is really compelling and really moving. And by the way, you know, if I could uh, take you back a bit to, uh, to the first section, the uh, theology of history that we talked about. Even there in chapter four, as he leads up to this last push, so to speak, before they enter the land. Chapter four, in bringing to a conclusion what God has done, is one of the most poignant chapters in all of the Bible, in my mind. I mean, listen to the language. Uh, of chapter 4. Now, O Israel, give heed to the statues and the ordinances which I teach you, and do them that you might live, and that you might go and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, gives you. Take heed, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. And then over in verse 22, I am going to die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you will go over and you will take possession of this glorious land. For the Lord your God is a devouring fire, a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. And again in verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. For to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, and there's no other beside him. Now this powerful stuff, this has got to be one of the most gorgeous chapters in all the Bible, chapter four, as he brings to a conclusion this first section and leads into this major second section. And, and, and the beautiful language continues, which is an amazing thing considering that chapters five through 26 are the legal requirements. They are, in fact, the law. But, but, but the way Moses uh, proclaims the law reminds them of the Ten Commandments, reminds them uh, of their obligation. I mean, it's, it's nothing short of absolutely just beautiful, beautiful language. So if you were to summarize this large section of the book, what would that be? Or what are our takeaways from this? Well, again, you know, I mean, I would say that the first four chapters is a theology of history. Right. Second section, I would call theology of law and obedience. Essentially, the emphasis is on obedience. You know, the Ten Commandments, here are the Ten Commandments uh, that you need to obey. 
And here are the Ten Commandments, and, and this obedience must issue from love and fear. And so what you have here then is in this legal review, uh, the requirements of God, uh, as outlined uh, specifically as he, as he uses this uh, compelling language in chapter 10, that we are to, uh, or the people of Israel, are to encounter God in a love relationship that obviously involves the fear of God mm-hmm. as well as love for God. Now, this theology of law and obedience, I would say, if I was to summarize it, I would say that um, because we are to love and to fear God, and by the way, I think that's one aspect of uh, modern-day Christian living that, that is so lacking. I mean, the fear of God seems to be something that uh, that is not as widely practiced or understood as I believe it was in, in the Old Testament, and therefore, in a sense, the book of Deuteronomy is a reminder uh, for us because, you know, this God is, is a devouring fire. Right. He is a consuming fire. He, this is not, you know, kind of a, a little wimpy uh, ghost uh, in the sky that we, that we worship. It's love and fear which leads to obedience to the law. Mm-hmm. So here, if, if love and fear result in obedience... And obedience is manifested with regard to the law. What you have here is one's inner history affecting one's outer history, affecting the proof of love. In other words, love and fear represent our inner history. Obedience, which issues out of love and fear, is our outer history. So the inner history affects the way we act, the outer history. Mm -hmm. And the proof that it does is found in the law. So that that would be a summation, if you want, of the theology of law and obedience. The proof in the law is because we are obeying the law. We can show proof through our obedience. Yes. Chapter 13, verse 3 actually says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or to that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. So it's love and fear that is combined here. Keep his commandments, obey his voice, and you shall serve him and cleave to him. Yes, the law becomes the proof of our obedience. Okay, so that's part, that's uh, the second point. So uh, on to the third. Yes, the third... um, this is the, the choice, remember. This is uh, chapters 27 to 30. What's that? Four chapters. So let me kind of say this. If, if the first section is the theology of history, the second section is the theology of law and obedience, then the third section is a theology of ethics. This is the covenant that is uh, set in uh, Moab. And essentially what you have here is the blessings and the curses. The blessings here in chapter 27, you have the curses here in chapter uh, 28. Uh, The blessings uh, basically come from obedience to the law, and the curses come from disobedience to the law. Again, we have the theology of call as set over against the theology of the serpent. So basically what you have here in, in chapter 30 in particular um, you have uh, verses 15 to, uh, to 20. These, this, this would be the key verse or the key verses in this section. 
See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you are entering to take possession. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you this day that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land which you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. And I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and cleaving to him. Hmm. It's marvelous stuff, you see. So basically, he is bringing all these sections to a head in the third section, the third point. Here is the covenant at Moab. Are we going to be a people of, of obedience? Or are we going to be a rebellious people? So that's kind of uh, a theology of ethics, you know. So you have the theology of history, theology of law and obedience, and now the theology of ethics. What are you going to do about this? How, what are you going to choose? Um, you have before you life and death. Choose the blessing. Choose life. Did they have a an eternal perspective back then? No, I would say not. Um, uh, Revelation is, is uh, you know, we would say that Revelation is progressive. Right. And remember, this is the Pentateuch. These are the opening revelations of God. And, and in many ways, you know, uh, the people of Israel going through the wilderness didn't have a Bible in the sense that we, we have a Bible. Sure. So, you know, they were dependent upon those who, to whom God revealed himself in this particular case, of course, Moses. Uh, so Moses, on the behalf of God, you know, stands up as the preacher. And that's the wonderful thing, you know, Karl Barth, the great German uh, theologian, you know, uh, often would say that the preacher um, proclaims literally the word of God uh, to the people. And I think that was certainly the case here with Moses. And this was God's choice um, through the voice of Moses. Mm. Uh, you know, here we are at Moab. We've been wandering around for 38, 40, total of 40 years. Um, we have failed in the past, and here is the opportunity once more. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Interestingly, um, I remember my spiritual father, uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert Roberts in Belfast, uh, Northern Ireland, who led me to Christ, told me the story once of how he became a Christian. And he was at a, um, a meeting, a Wednesday uh, kind of Bible class or some such, and after it was over, as he was leaving the room, the, the minister, Methodist minister, turned to him, and as he was leaving the room, he said, he simply said, Robert, what about it? That was it. What about it? And Robert said, you know, I, could, I, I couldn't turn to him and say, what about what? You know? He knew exactly. And that night, because that minister simply brought, brought to him a theology of ethics, give him a choice. Robert, what about it? Robert said, I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ. Um, and because he made that decision that night, he was the one then who led me to Christ many years later. So one cannot underestimate the power of this third point, you know, this third section, this uh, theology of ethics, this choice. Behold, today I place before you life and death. What are you going to do? 
What are you going to do about it? Choose life. Wow. So you suggested now a theology of history, theology of law and obedience, and uh, the theology of ethics. I'd never really thought of ethics in that way. We tend to think of ethics very differently today, don't we? Um, yes. Well, yes and no. I mean, ethics is, uh, is always a matter of which way you're going to go. You know, are you going to uh, act in, in a particular way in response to a stimulus um, or not? Um, so, no, I think in reality, it's uh, ethics is always a matter of, of a choice. Is it, would you not agree? Yeah, I guess that's true. Ethics, I think we associate with the law. And I guess that's always a choice, to follow the law or to walk away from it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that uh, the, the main section of Deuteronomy is, in fact, law, and then issuing from that, emerging from it, is this the theology of ethics, you know? In, in response to the law, what are you going to do? Right. By the way, the fact that you don't consider there's a choice regard to the law uh, indicates that you're very much a law-abiding citizen, doesn't it? <laughs> you <laughs> I guess, just, I guess you that's just true. take the law and you obey it. But not everyone, Kip, is quite as law-abiding as you are. There are people who actually make a choice to break the law. So, so it, it is uh -huh. a matter, I think, of are you going to be obedient or disobedient to the law? Are you going to be obedient or disobedient to God's requirements in this, in this particular instance? Yeah. Well, that brings us to the final point. Yeah. We've been looking at Deuteronomy through the lens of theology mm -hmm. uh, because that's what it is. You know, it's um, uh, theology means basically the knowledge of God or the study of God. And, and we have the historical review, the theology of history. The legal requirements are God's requirements, which is the theology of law and obedience. And then choose you this day. I set before you life and death, the theology of ethics. I, I think in many ways, the last section I would call theology proper, if you'll bear with me. Mm. In other words, you know, here, here is Moses' final farewell. He's 120 years old. He's saying to his people, now I want you to be strong and courageous. And then when he gets to, uh, to chapter 32, he breaks out into song. So you have the song of Moses here at the very end of the book. And, and in that song, he basically describes the God whom he loves, the God whom he has walked with, the God who has spoken to him, the God who has been his very life and existence. And he describes him in these marvelous terms. God, God is a rock. And he's basically saying at the very end, listen, this is what God is like. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness without iniquity. He is just and he is right. So, I mean, basically what he's saying is that when all is said and done, I want to tell you about the God whom I love. Hmm. And he describes him in these marvelous terms in chapter 32. He is my rock. He is my salvation. He is everything to me. This is what God is like. And that's how he ends. What a marvelous way to end this book and to end the, the Pentateuch. This is what God is like. So I call that theology proper. Theology of history, theology of law and obedience, theology of ethics, those are his first three points, 
and then the culminating point, theology proper. And then on Mount Nebo, God buries Moses. It's fascinating. Fascinating. Hmm. Uh, it is God who buries him so that no one can mark the spot. And then you have his epitaph written at the very end of the book in chapter 34, uh, verses oh, 10, um, 10 to, uh, uh, to 12. And there is not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all the servants, for all the mighty power and all the great and terrible deeds which Moses wrought in the sight of all Israel. Wow, what a great epitaph is that. That's pretty good. It's great, isn't it? And I would add that as the curtain falls towards the end of the book, or at the end of the book, I would add these words that I, uh, I, I came across years ago in a commentary on the Pentateuch, and I do, I do not know the source, or I would, I would certainly um, honor it. But the writer simply said this, when a man of God dies, nothing of God dies. So even this great, powerful, wonderful, the like of which no prophet has risen since in the days of Israel, like Moses. Even when Moses dies, nothing of God dies. And so we move beyond the confines of Pentateuch into the greater revelation that still awaits us throughout the Old and New Testaments. Wow. Well, thank you, Alan. Truly insightful, rather inspiring, this walk through the first five books of the Bible. I do have to ask this one question, though. This one additional question. Moses didn't get in to see the Promised Land. That had to have been a great disappointment. No, no, he actually did. He did make it into the Promised Land. You don't know when? It's a New Testament reference. Do you remember when Jesus went up into the mountain and uh, there came to him Moses and Elijah and they spoke with him? So there's a sense in which one, one could, could legitimately say, even though he did not cross the Jordan, he made it in the end. And by the way, there was just as, as a little kind of addendum to this, I, I was, um, on one occasion, I took a group to Israel. We went up to the top of Mount Nebo and we stood there and uh, a mist, a fog had descended upon the land. And I've got to tell you that I had prepared a really, I thought, rather staring uh, devotional for the top of the mountain, gazing across the Jordan, gazing across the Dead Sea to the Promised Land. And oh, I had, I had it all worked out. Um, and when we got up there, you couldn't see anything. You couldn't see yeah. the Dead Sea. You couldn't see the Jordan. You could not certainly see anything beyond the Jordan. And I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? You know, um, and there was one lady uh, in the group, you know, I just basically threw it open and I told them, listen, I had this, um, I had this devotional that I'd prepared, but it's, it's of no value now because, you know, you can't see anything. So we sat there outside a little church and I just threw it open to, you know, what do you all think? Where, where are you in your pilgrimage? And one lady very insightfully said something that I've always remembered. She said, you know, it's true that we can't see the promised land, but you know, we know it's there. Mm. We know it's there. And I thought to myself, that was a better 
message than anything I had prepared. We know it's there. Even when you can't see the promise of God, we have the confidence, absolutely, that it's there. Yeah. That's wonderful. And a great lead-in to what our next book is going to be. We're going to talk about another formidable one, which is Job. Yeah. And the whole question, the, the question of the ages, you know, why is there suffering in the world? The answer might uh, surprise you, actually. Uh, and there is an answer. And as we delve into the book of Job, we will discover it. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to that. Please be sure to come to us with your thoughts, comments, and questions, either on our Facebook page or directly via email at podcast at thewordisout.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.